Welcome back, everybody, to yet another episode of Going for Two, the official podcast of the Extra Points newsletter. I am your host, the publisher of said podcast, Matt Brown, but I'm not joined by Brian Fisher today. Normally I am, but I, I have to come clean with you guys and, and tell you tell you the truth about something. The last couple of episodes were pre-recorded, and, and the reason for that, we have a we have a very good excuse, is that Brian just had a baby. Or I mean, Brian didn't have the baby, right? I mean, we've all we've all we've we've all done gone through fourth grade biology, but you know, but but uh, it, the, the Fishers are all happy and healthy, and there's there's a new little one in the household. But uh, we we were we were talking a couple of days ago, and he was like, "Look, man, I am uh, I'm still on permanent Hawaii kickoff time right now. I'm still trying to acclimate my body to being up at four o'clock in the morning. Can what do you say we get another week? Like, no, look, brother, take all the time you need. So hopefully, Brian." joins us next week. If not, um, I hope he's taking a well-deserved nap because newborns are, are a trip. Um, so anyway, that, that I think gives us a good chance to maybe introduce this audience to another name in the Extra Points Extended Universe, somebody who recently joined us that maybe you're not quite as familiar with. Uh, last week, the Extra Points newsletter uh, acquired another newsletter in, in this space. It's a newsletter that, that does similar work to Extra Points. It's uh, written by somebody who is, uh, you know, it used to live very close to me. Uh, I want to introduce my friend and now my colleague, uh, Andy Wittry. Andy, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, Matt. This is super exciting. You know, you mentioned that we do do very similar work. Um, I've always considered our two publications kind of, you know, spiritual cousins, if you will. I've told you offline, you know, numerous times that Extra Points was really kind of the inspiration for me launching Out of Bounds, just seeing the success that you had. And we've always had kind of a, a similar mind in terms of our FOIA requests and different off the field topics. And now having the chance to really join forces and collaborate and, you know, use your industry knowledge and editing, I think is a really exciting opportunity, not only for me and and my readers, but now your readers as well. So it's a, it's a super exciting chance, I think, for both of us and now our collective readership too. I, it, I, it's definitely going to make this newsletter better, I think. So why don't we start? Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what Out of Bounds was and sort of the, your philosophy or the things that you're interested in as a writer and maybe how that's different from uh, what Extra Points was beforehand, uh, you know, like I'm familiar with you and I, I know many of the people that are in the college sports industry are familiar with you, but may, maybe not everybody is. Maybe this could be a chance for you to kind of introduce what everybody's getting by you being involved with Extra Points now. Definitely. So, you know, at the start, I launched this back in July of 2020 when, you know, it, it was a pretty rough time of year and rough time for all of us, but just kind of the uncertainty around, will there be college football? Will there be college sports period? Will there be college period? If we go back about a year and a half or a year and a quarter ago. And so I thought I would like a place to kind of have as my kind of, you know, safe space landing strip that if my, you know, professional work falls through, I still have this other kind of secondary outlet to kind of publish my thoughts. And so it was a place where I published at least once a week, um, sometimes two or three or four times a week, often from a public records request perspective, maybe a data perspective of crunching different numbers about whether it's recruiting rankings or uh, different states and how they produce college football players, something that I know that you've talked about numerous times on the podcast and in your newsletter. So really just kind of all the off the field subjects that affect college athletics, like you mentioned of, you know, gender equity and health and safety and 
the quote unquote non-revenue sports, which is obviously a debate that we can have about, you know, what is what does that term mean? Is it even accurate? So stuff like, you know, when Clemson cut their men's uh, and women's cross country program, or maybe just men's actually, what does that mean? Why do they do it? What are the financials behind it um, during the name, image and likeness lead up? So lots of kind of, um, you know, FOIA requests into, you know, can I FOIA request what an athlete discloses to university? I did one on, you know, what do compliance officers, what was their month of July like with all these questions and conflicting state laws and university policies and questions about can we work with Barstool, all these different questions. So really it's, you know, different topics that affect uh, the on-field product or maybe, you know, conference alignments or different philosophies within a department. Um, but, you know, not a perspective of, you know, who is our backup left tackle for week three, but rather you know, what is our NIL policy look like or what is the, um, you know, force measure clause look like for our men's basketball non-conference scheduling, you know, kind of the, the nitty gritty kind of the minutiae uh, within college athletics. And that's the stuff that I know that you and your audience have an interest in a well, which is why that I think this partnership will be so successful. I, I agree. One of the things that I think you are really good at um, which is it's just interesting because I feel like I sort of made my own identity within the college football internet earlier in my career as being a FOIL guy. And that was something I, I, I did a lot at Vox Media at SB Nation, in, in part because, you know, when I was working at SB Nation, nobody was going to pick up, the, nobody was going to answer the phone if we called anyway. So what, what better way to compel someone to give us information if they don't want to talk to us than through open records? And a lot of the open record stuff that I've been doing at Extra Points has been more pure research rather than something that immediately becomes a story. But then this is, oh, I, I say this with love, right? Like you're way better at this than I am <laughs> in terms of filing the requests, in terms of having the tenacity to fire the sheer volume, to, to know what to ask for and when to ask for and being quicker about it. And there have been multiple times over the last year when I've like checked my email, I'm like, ah, ah damn it, Andy got that before I did. Or like, Andy, that was really smart of Andy to even file that request before I even thought of it. So like, that's one thing that I'm really excited about is like, this is something that is important to me and I think is important to my audience. And you do it better than I do. Um, and so, like, I, I think our readers and listeners should be excited about what kind of things I might be able to turn up over, uh, over the next couple of months. Definitely. And that means a lot, Matt, just, you know, knowing kind of the work that you've done over your career. And it is one where obviously I do enjoy kind of the investigative um, enterprise reporting. So one of my bigger ones was on former Cincinnati men's basketball coach, John Brannon, and kind of what led to his firing and his departure. It's one where kind of had a clear focus of, okay, what actually happened here? But there's lots of stories too, where it's one where I've just gone in and kind of asked just like, uh, there's maybe not a clear focus, but I do have kind of a sense of, you know, maybe there's some smoke here. What's the fire? Where is the fire? You know, how hot is this fire? And there's sometimes stuff where you just get lucky in the sense of you're asking maybe um, the wrong question in the right place, if you will, where it's something that I find that I didn't go in looking for didn't go in expecting to find. It may not be salacious, you know, it may not be, uh, you know, some college athletics TMZ angle, but it might just kind of be back to that whole kind of nitty gritty kind of inside baseball story, if you will, where it's something that is just kind of um, the, the outside perspective of the media or the fan may not you know, realize to ask a question, may not even think about this one topic, but then you see, okay, what is the, the deputy AD or the AD for marketing? What do they say about this one thing that you kind of stumble upon? And it turns into a really cool story. So that's one a kind of angle that I take of just like asking hopefully smart questions. And even if I find a different answer, they can still be productive sometimes too. I, I, I want to kind of shift that mindset 
into maybe a more contemporary topic, right? The, the reason why I think you and I are a good fit and, and why Brian and I are a good fit and, and why I think other people within our extended universe work well together is because we are interested in looking at some of the, the, the topics that everyone else in college sports is talking about, but from a, a very different kind of perspective. Which is, and, and part of what I want to talk to you today is about was about one of those conversations. I, I, I'm recording this here on, on Tuesday afternoon. I was away from my desk for most of Tuesday between either being on phone calls and, and helping a family member move and just kind of being out and about. But I know that in, earlier in the day, the kind of the, 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 the discourse of the day, as it were, was about this idea of like what what are the best college football jobs, and you know you had a couple of major analysts, uh, you know rank some of the the highest profile programs. You're like, well, is Alabama, maybe Alabama is the best job, or maybe Texas is the best job, or Ohio State's the best job. And I think you could probably rank the same five or six or seven teams in some combination. If you were just thinking about what is the kind of job you could go into where you could have the potential to win a national championship. When I, when you hear what is the best job, either for I guess best college football job or best college basketball coaching job, do you do you think that that is more about where you have the best opportunity to win, or do you think there are other factors in play when you're trying to answer that that sort of question? Well, I think the answer is yes. So there's definitely kind of both components there. I think the way that kind of, you know, the capital D discourse, kind of the stuff that was going on on Twitter today, I think it was Joel Klatt put out his top five, perhaps, is that it is kind of, it is those ready-made programs. So for football, it's going to be your Ohio States, maybe your USC's or Texas's, uh, Oklahoma, Alabama, those sorts where we've seen enough sustained success across 10 years, across eras, where those are sort of the programs that recruit at a high level. They have the institutional support financially from the fan base going back to, you know, maybe as late as the, or the as long ago as the late 1800s, early 1900s, ones where they're just kind of positioned historically. They're so deep rooted within the sport that they can win immediately. Yeah, exactly. But I, I think what you're getting at too, is that there is kind of the, um, the work-life balance component, which is something that I think, especially at this time um, for all of us, right after the last year, year plus, what it's been like is that with so many of us working from home, or people moving and having the chance to say, hey, I want to move to the city or the state where I now have the chance to move to due to working from home or being around my kids more often, whatever the case may be, is that there are other factors. And I think that's what we're getting at, too, is that I know that, you know, when people throw out maybe, you know, Kentucky football or a Northwestern football, where sure, you're not going to win a national championship. You may only contend for if you're Northwestern a conference championship, maybe once or twice a decade, uh, Kentucky, maybe you contend for a division title, you know, maybe once a decade, if that, but there's other, you know, factors where you can be highly paid. You can have maybe the job security of you win eight games a year consistently, and they can build a statue of you. So I do think there's kind of two different components. I think kind of the, the common discourse will be, okay, how do you go 12 and one or 13 and 0 consistently make the playoff contend for titles? But there is also the other half of, you know, what is my family and work-life balance like, right? Am I in a warm climate? Do I have job security? Am I still well-paid, but not maybe having to make seven mil a year or whatever the case may be? So I do think there's kind of two sides of that coin. Are you insinuating here and on a podcast now with, with two Midwesterners that it is inherently superior to be in a place that's a warmer climate? You know, I, it depends on personal preference, right? Is it if you're a, maybe you're someone that just prefers a warm climate? No, that's, that's, that's the wrong answer. The, the correct answer is yes, of course it does. We've, we've, we, we, we both shoveled 
three feet of snow last year. Yeah, it is better to be somewhere warm. If I could relocate this stupid city down, you know, the 600 miles south, I definitely would. Um, no, you 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 bring you bring up a good point, and 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 that generally gets lost, I think, in the mainstream discourse about about coaching gigs. But it's not that crazy when you just think about jobs in general. Right. Like, I mean, Andy, I know you're, you're a little bit younger than I am, but like has, has the best job in your life or the best job of people that, you know, has that always been the highest paying or, or the most prestigious employer? No, it hasn't at all. And it's certainly once again, it comes down to kind of what motivates you, what drives you. So even if it isn't money um, for someone else, it might be. But no, there's not a, a one size fits all um the biggest brand, the highest paycheck, that's not always the best job for, you know, you personally. No, not at all. I, I, that has been my experience as well. And if, if I'm to look here just from a college football perspective, right. The, 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 Texas is a pretty common one that that's kind of bandied about here as, as being near the top. Right. And listen, Austin, great city. It's become a lot more expensive, but you're going to make $5 million a year easily. Like you'll be fine. Uh, you're in a state that produces, high school football talent at, at an enormously high level. Um, you have a, a, a record of, of, of some success. It's a place that if you got everything cooking, you should be able to recruit at an elite level, win a championship, you'll be a big deal. But then I look at like the people that have had that job. And other than Mac Brown, people don't tend to, one, you don't tend to leave the Texas coaching job on your own volition. And it's not like that. It's uh, they've been leaving for greener pastures or elevated their career over the past you know, several years. Uh, even even at a place like like Alabama, you know, the, the pinnacle of this sport. Yes, when you hire a transformational coach, you will kick everybody's ass. But in our lifetime, maybe you might be a little bit too young to remember it. But like, it, it hasn't been that long ago when Alabama sucked. Um, or at, at the very least was was not this, this, the, the Nick Saban death machine that it was. And it isn't because those jobs don't pay enough. It isn't because they don't have palatial facilities or, or proximity to talent. It's about all the other baloney that comes with these jobs, the enormous pressure, the crazy booster culture, the all the other constituencies. Like these are gigs where if you lose, the governor is going to call you. And that's not true at a lot of other college football gigs, right? Yeah, not at all. It's one where it's kind of the perks that make it so great of that paycheck, of the booster support, of the sellouts. Those are also what make the job so difficult, too, is that you have the, you know, we love talking about warring factions in college football, right? Of, you know, look at Auburn or look at, you know, Alabama, Prenix, Saban, all these different examples. And it's like, okay, if you can't unite those people as, say, Mac Brown did at Texas, then your job gets really difficult in a hurry. You know, the college basketball world, I think a little bit better than I do. Uh, I certainly didn't really grow up a college basketball fan when, when I, you know, I grew up outside of Columbus. And when I was, when I was a kid through those really formative sports years, Ohio state basketball was garbage, you know, lose by double digits to South Florida kind of garbage. People were sidewalk Cincinnati fans because they had, they had Huggins and they were kind of, they, they were, they were cooking on, on at that level. I know that you had a, a different experience, but if we were to try to apply these same sort of factors. We're not just where is a place you can potentially win at a high level. Where's the place that's going to give you real money, but also a place where maybe you're not going to be burned in effigy or there's not going to be a crazy message board or the governor's not going to call you if you don't do well. And given the location and, and all the other factors, what would, what would be some men's or women's basketball coaching gigs that you would think would be the, the, some of the best kind of jobs, even if they're not necessarily Indiana or UCLA? 
you know? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I do think, you know, looking at the ACC, that's where kind of, you know, so much of the roots of, of basketball lies in the college level. So looking at kind of those, um, at least in terms of perception, once again, kind of the capital D discourse, maybe those, if you will, second tier jobs, not that the schools aren't great, not that the programs aren't great, but basically setting aside, all right, you know, not Duke, not North Carolina, um, you know, maybe not, uh, I don't know, Louisville's basically, it's a pro, they, they treat their college team like a pro team essentially in that city, but say, you know, look at, Look at Virginia, the way that they pay Tony Bennett, and it's a great academic school, and it's one where, once again, given that they are not um, they're not Duke, they're not UNC, they're not expecting to win national championships. They have won one, and they've won either the ACC tournament or finished atop the ACC regular season standings numerous times, where that's a job where now you know they can recruit maybe high-profile transfers, they can get some four-stars, and Tony Bennett, that's one where, you know when he says that it's time up, I'm going to retire. He could have a statue built, built of him within the next decade and win hundreds of games there. You look at Florida State and what Leonard Hamilton has done. Once again, maybe kind of even a, a newer money football school, but he's turned that into kind of a men's basketball power in the last maybe two, three, four years with lottery picks and school and, uh, and players like that turning that school into one that can contend with a Duke and UNC and schools of that ilk. Yeah. You look at maybe in the Big East, they have Villanova where they do care a lot about men's basketball and they're kind of the class of their conference right now. But given what Jay Wright has done, is it, that is kind of a, um, a program where you can maybe have a, a little bit down here, but they could still earn a five seed and make the sweet 16 is that there are some of these programs in the big East, maybe, maybe like a, a Xavier where institutionally, it seems like whatever coach they've picked, um, Travis Steele has still has a lot to prove, but the program dating back to Thad Mata and Sean Miller and Chris Mack, where they have a lot of fan support. They love that crosstown rivalry with Cincinnati. And that's one where it may not be, um, you know, one of the top, it's not, you know, Indiana, for example, within that region, but still a program where you can win at a high level, uh, get paid well. And the Big East, even the new look Big East is still a respectable conference. So I, I do think, you know, maybe the geography is a little bit different, uh, quite literally in the fact that so much of football recruiting, as we know, gets back to the players in the Southeast and California and Ohio. Is it for men's basketball and women's basketball? Not that you can't find players in those areas, but I don't think the geography is as tied to we have to recruit, you know, Miami super hard or Southern California. There's players that, you know, maybe go to prep school or you might find players in, in New England and Northeast area talent is a little bit more spread out, but I, I do think that is an interesting discussion to look at kind of that football principle and then apply it to college basketball as well. Yeah. The, I've, I've studied the geographic distribution of, of high level college basketball talent too. And it, it's, it's not nearly as consolidated as, as for college football. Xavier does seems like a, a potentially good example. I, I was sitting here you know, listening to you and it, remi- it reminds me a little bit of when I was, I, I've talked to a couple of, of people who have left the, the head coach, the coaching profession from Olympic sports. And it's a little bit different here because you, you, unless you're at like a really big budget school, if you're like a swim coach or a track coach, you're, you're really not getting capital R rich. You, you, if you're, if you're a head coach at a power five institution, you, you may make good money, but it's that you're not going to get like generational wealthy generational wealth. Like you will as like a P five football coach or anything. And you, and you have to put, do a lot of scut work to get to that point. And I, I've, I've heard, I've talked to coaches who said like, look, I had the opportunity to be like a head coach at you know, a big East school or an American athletic school, or even some big 10 schools and realize that I would just have a better quality of life as a high school coach 
or as a club coach and somebody who teaches English and is capped at like 20 hours a week for this extra stuff. And especially, you know, depending on what, what kind of what state you're in or what kind of school district you're in, you get 10, 15 years into a public school system. You, you start running a camp. You can you can make decent money. Right. And, and that you're not going to be able to do that as a as a as a men's basketball or a women's basketball coach necessarily in college. But that's that's something to think about. Um, I, I almost wonder for the right kind of person, if you might have a, a better life in some respects, if you just stayed at like Division three. Right. Like, did you did you spend much time around Division three campuses when you were a kid? Did you grow up around too many of those? No, you know, I'm from Cincinnati. So it was, you know, University of Cincinnati. It was Xavier. Uh, Dayton wasn't too far away, but I really didn't have much exposure to that D2 or D3 level. No. So, I mean, I, I grew up in Licking County, which is which is just east of Columbus. And I was, I don't know, a thousand yards from Denison University, um, which is which is in Granville. Um, and, and I, and that's most people in Granville ended up working in some capacity with the university, um, or they, they might be at a, um, uh, or, you know, place like Kenyon or Ohio Wesleyan. There's a bunch of these division three schools around Columbus. And these are not places where as the head basketball coach, you're going to make a ton of money. Um, and in, in some markets that, that might be a challenge because you might be in a higher cost of living place, but also no one's going to fire you if you don't win a bunch of basketball games at Kenyon. And I, I don't think you want to be at a division three school that's so dramatically under-resourced where all of your programs are just like explicitly a tuition de- deal. Like if you're at a, like a division three football coach and you need to produce a roster of 130 kids, that's more, almost more of a sales job than it is a coaching gig. But if you love your sport, and you're at a place where you've built some kind of sustainable culture. Like if I was a really good swim coach, would I rather coach swimming at Kenyon where I can win, where I'll win national titles and nobody will ever bother me or coach swimming at Cincinnati. I mean, you, you, you might want to do Kenyon. Right. And like, it's, 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 I don't think it's crazy to, to, to openly talk about this, not I mean, with coaching, with administrative gigs, with other stuff here around this industry, the, the grass really isn't always greener. And I don't think somebody's necessarily irrational or crazy for, you know, not necessarily wanting to go grab the USC gig or the Texas gig or the Ohio State gig in whatever sport uh, if it opens up, you know? Yeah, it just comes down to, you know, kind of your life priorities, your work-life balance. And I think you're onto something there. I do think that once you are exposed to that division one level, whether maybe you're not going there for generational wealth, but once you have the chance to pursue it, you might be silly not to chase that, right? And we've we've both kind of broken down just the, the staggering buyouts and how much those have increased in the last, say, I want to say 2013 to me kind of sticks out as a year where there's just kind of an upwards trend of it was already increasing, but just the rate of the increase really increase in terms of buyouts. Yeah. So even, you know, you could be a, an unsuccessful by whatever, um, by your AD's metric or by your fan base's metric that ultimately fires you. And then you get sent off packing with generational wealth. So at a certain point, you know, it probably does make sense. All right. If I, if I have the chance to take the USC job or even, you know, a mountain West job or even a whack job is that there's still, there's a lot of money, <laughs> to do that. but I do think, uh, well, yeah, picking at least at division one, there's still compared that to division three and the salaries and the exposure. But I do think you're right in that, you know, if, if it's truly the, the coaching, the teaching, um, you know, not the money, maybe you do like the community culture and the campus culture, the city you're in. If you do like, Hey, I can send my kids here for free. And, and I love that Denison education, like you mentioned, then that is a pretty attractive job. I think. Yeah. I mean, like, I'll, I'll be honest with you. If like, ESPN called me tomorrow and said, we want to give you a TV show. 
We want to give you a half million dollars. We want to sign you for a three-year deal. We want to, you know, and, and just blow you, money whip you, blow you away. Would I close down extra points and like take that gig? Yeah. Right. If, if Gene Smith retires and says, listen, I know this is wild, but could you come replace, replace me? Uh, I would do a terrible job and I'd be fired in 18 months, but yeah, I'd probably take it. But I can think of a lot of other gigs in media or even in athletics administration that would technically be like raises or steps up from where I am now that I wouldn't do. Um, just not I mean, that I probably would have wanted to do when I was 25, but they're looking at it now. I was like, is it worth the extra hassle? Is it worth working with people I may not like? Is it worth moving? Is it worth giving up some of my flexibility? I, I, I remember when I first launched Extra Points, I was still applying for other staff jobs or, or other writing jobs for those first couple of months. Um, not that there were very many of those because this was right after the, the pandemic like really kind of hit. And we weren't sure if sports were going to be coming back or when, and nobody was really hiring, but I was still sending out applications. But over the last six months, I haven't, even though people have like, I've had opportunities to take full-time jobs because you get to a certain place in your life and you're just like, I'm interested in different, different things. And coaches are like that too. And athletic directors are like that. And potentially even schools looking for different conference homes uh, are like that. There's a certain, I mean, there's always going to be someone who's going to take the Alabama gig or the Texas gig or the USC gig, but like now, especially now, now like USC football is open and there's going to be some, some men's basketball blue bloods that, that probably open up here this year. Um, it isn't, it isn't always that I'm automatically going to do it. Uh, which I, I think, I think is worth keeping in mind as I try to sit here and think about football too. Like I joked about this, but Northwestern football is a pretty sweet gig. Like uh, it's probably the best athletic director gig in the country, which is part of what made their last search. So mystifying, um, that they went internal when they could have had you know, almost anybody that they wanted to, because you have no fan expectations, almost no angry media. Um, and you also have a bunch of sympathetic people who are Northwestern grads and national markets. You don't have to deal with was from noisy, you know, nosy dokes, dorks like me. You get to live in a great city and like, everything's already built and no one's going to fire you for going seven and five. Um, I mean, like if it's personal preference, like I would rather live in Evanston than, than Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, other people might feel might feel differently, but like you're never going to win a national title in Northwestern unless you're a women's lacrosse player or like a fencer. But that's not a bad place to be. No, you know, it's ironic because actually I do have some relatives that live, you know, within a mile of Northwestern's campus. I was actually there last week for about a week. And, you know, they have their own private beach at Northwestern. They have a, yeah. a damn spaceship, you know, on the side of the lake for their, their athletic facilities. It's beautiful. It's a very great academic school, as we know, very diverse campus. And like you mentioned, you know, you have all the, the media alumni that are now working national markets and work at, you know, ESPN or USA Today or what have you. And like you mentioned, that's a very good, especially for an administrator. That's a great place to be, to live on the lake. You're, you're near Chicago, but not in the city. You're in this nice suburban neighborhood. And like you mentioned, there's not that pressure of, we don't have to go 11 and one or 12 and 0 like a house state. And we don't have to make the playoff, you know, four out of every five years. And that makes that a very alluring job, which, you know, you compare that and contrast that to, like you mentioned, these Oklahoma's or Texas's or Alabama's and Ohio states. And it's maybe very good in a very different way. This idea of the grass not always being greener is something I might kick at a little bit more over the next uh, next couple of days on extra points. I, I think it, it kind of intersects a little bit to what we had published on Tuesday, 
this is for, for, for full subscribers talking about uh, what a, a, an industry consultant and his, his proposal for kind of realigning Conference USA and the Sun Belt, which is something that I think almost every uh, reporter in that market has written about at least once over the last three years. But from talking to some of the athletic directors, and then even after that published and talking to some other folks, I know people in the Sun Belt are quietly optimistic about we might be able to keep some of our teams from joining the American, even if they ask, in part because of that comfort level. Like, yes, you're going to make more money, probably not as more, more money than you think, because that the American TV deal is not going to be worth seven million dollars in four seasons. But, um, you know, you might have a little bit more influence. You might you, you have you have a comfort level. You can bust to a lot of your opponents. You don't always necessarily know what that's going to be in, in, a, in a different kind of environment. Not everybody was always going to chase the uh, the proverbial big check. It's rare because that has you know, that is generally what happens in college sports. But maybe 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 not everybody. Um. What else are you working on in in the or you have kind of on your radar here over these next couple of weeks that folks should be looking forward to? Yeah, so my first story for Extra Points was published on Monday and it was looking ahead to 2050 and just really how diverse America will be and then kind of how that will trickle down to college athletics. You know, I think the numbers we cited were that by 2030 or so is that immigration will produce more population increases in this country they a natural increase, just so meaning, you know, births minus deaths and looking at what does that mean for college athletics and sports like tennis and soccer and swimming and diving. And so one kind of related story upon that that I think should hopefully publish next week is that there are multiple tennis programs that I found through FOIA requests is that their team policy is on and off the court within team activities. Players have to speak English. And some of these rosters of the programs that have these rules, you know, they may only have three players that were born in the U.S. They might have seven or eight players that are from abroad, either from Europe or South America or Canada or what have you. And surely they all, you know, probably speak English, obviously, to be an, uh, an American student here in the country. But that's not their first language. And, you know, I found one example where a program that had this rule is that they had two players from Turkey who were part of a doubles pairing last season. And to me, I'm thinking, you know, that actually might be a competitive advantage if they can speak a different language that their opponents and opposing coaching staff can't pick up and they don't have to, have, you know, speak in English and have the opponents hear it. But based on their team rule, they have to speak English. So that's one that we're certainly looking into of, you know, what is the reasoning behind that? Obviously, sure, it helps maybe build uh, team culture and team chemistry and keeps everyone kind of on the same page. But there could be benefits, too, of, you know, can you teach other players new language. Can you have that competitive advantage in mid-match, like I mentioned, where a player can speak in a language the opponent can't understand? So that's one that we stumbled upon, kind of like I mentioned how you don't always go into a FOIA request kind of knowing what you're looking for, but you hopefully kind of end up in a cool, smart, original place. And that's one example where I wasn't looking for that, but kind of you know came away with that takeaway. And I think that could be a very interesting story that hopefully should be published next week. Also looking into you know, anecdotally, it feels like there's been so much turnover at the commissioner and the president and AD level really in the last you know year and a half. And we kind of know why. I want to kind of put the data through that theory and find out, OK, just has there been more turnover? Uh, if so, by what percent or by how many more, you know, D1 commissioner changes or D1 uh, AD changes? So I really want to dig into those numbers and kind of see, you know, we think there's all this kind of this mass exodus. Actually, my kind of final newsletter for Out of Bounds 
was with former George Mason Deputy AD Kevin McNamee. And he recently retired. And he kind of mentioned, hey, that was kind of part of my rationale for stepping away. And he's got to know for a fact that has affected other administrators. So I want to kind of put, you know, data to this anecdote and see, okay, just kind of what extent, how much turnover is there? Where does this kind of match up historically? So those are two of the stories that are kind of, you know, uh, on the front burner right now that should be published hopefully in the next few weeks. I'm really excited to see that second one because this has popped up in a lot of conversations that I've had with administrators over the past six months. Um, I don't know what the data, I mean, I don't know if this is one of those things where the, you know, the, the, the plural of anecdote is data, or if the numbers will actually bear that out. It, it does seem, you know, just from a very high level, that there's a little bit of a generational shift happening in athletics administration because this, the industry is changing a lot. And, I think you and I have talked about this, and this has definitely been, been written about a lot in, in other industries. After the last year, man, people are just burned out. We've had like politicians, you know, step down, people in other senior roles, people, a lot of folks in our generation uh, are, are resigning or are changing their career trajectories because they're just exhausted after having to maintain productivity after such a disaster last year and a half. And if you just got through all that and now see that your industry is looking very different from the one that you originally signed up for, I can understand how you decide, like, I don't need this, especially if you're an AD, because like this is the other thing I've been thinking about. Right. Like if you are, say, a above average head college football coach, you're probably making close to three million dollars a year. And if you stopped being a, a high, a, a, you know, the head football coach at Wake Forest or uh, at Ar Arkansas or whatever, you're not going to make $3 million. You, you are probably not going to get that kind of a job from the NFL. Um, there's only so many of those jobs. And you're probably not going to make up that same kind of money going into private industry. But if you're an AD at a place like Wake Forest or Arkansas, and you wanted to stop being an athletic director, it would be much easier for you then to go work for Pepsi or start a consulting company or do something completely different and make that kind of money again. Those those business skills are a little bit more transferable than somebody who can who can uh, diagnose a problem with a three fours inability to generate a pass rush. Um, maybe that makes it a little bit easier to switch gigs. That will be something uh, worth paying attention to in your story. I'm also going to have something else later this week, similar to what you had written on Monday. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, the an App State beat writer. Uh, named Ethan Joyce wrote this really fascinating story about Latino head football coaches and how many of them are there. Uh, how how is there is there a fraternity uh, like there is among among black coaches? What are uh, how are schools trying to to recruit more individuals from these groups? Um, uh, what about individuals that we might not necessarily know are, are Latino? Uh, you know, this obvious as you might expect uh, is of particular personal interest to me. Uh, I'm not aware of any Brazilian football coaches at the division one level right now. Uh, if, if there are any, I'd, I'd love to talk to you. Um, but I, I, I talked, I talked to, to Ethan about this a little bit more and should have another newsletter in a couple of days. I appreciate everybody here sticking around. I'm, I'm glad to have Andy on board here. Andy, uh, besides extra points, where can people find you on the internet? So on Twitter, just at Andy Wittry. My last name is W-I-T-T-R-Y. And that's where I post all my links and, and updates. And that's the best place to find my stuff. Andy, uh, my sources are telling me you have a new email address. Is that true? Yeah, I do. It's uh, Andy at extrapointsmb.com. So if you have any, you know, hot realignment gossip you want to share or, you know, high, high classified documents or story ideas, feedback, uh, that's always welcome at that email address. 
Uh, if you have any of that information, you can also send it to me uh, at Matt at Extra Points MB. You can mail it to me. That's uh, Good Spot Publishing LLC, uh, care of Matt Brown, P.O. Box 411023, Chicago, Illinois, 60641. Um, I say this in half jest, but people literally have mailed me stuff before, and I, I do check that P.O. Box all the time. But you can also find me on Twitter, of course, at Matt Brown EP. We'll be welcoming Brian back soon. We have some other really exciting guests here lined up that I'm excited to, uh, to bring on here with you. In the meantime, thanks for listening. We'll catch up with you next week.